think it's inevitable for any one of us as we grow that we try to overemphasize hitting our numbers and sometimes lose track of the bigger picture. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I am really excited to welcome Ina Kuznetsova to the show. I have gone through the amazing history of Ina on LinkedIn and looked at her companies and she has a lot of great wisdom and experiences to share. Ina, I would love if you would give your introduction because you know yourself better than I do. I wouldn't even know where to start. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ledge. I truly appreciate an opportunity, especially since all of my career has been in business to business. So it's always a pleasure to talk to like-minded people. I am the CEO of a company called Tools Group. We use artificial intelligence to optimize supply chain and retail planning, basically helping our customers to understand how they can optimize their working capital by not locking too much of it in inventory and yet meet all the necessary service levels or deliver goods to homes and in essence, do what we consider to be a mission of our company, make supply chain the force for good. I came to Tools Group because it combines two of my passions, AI and supply chain. But I came to this, to loves of my life, if you like, through almost two different parts of my career. I spent up almost 19 years in IBM, always focused on growing businesses or businesses that needed a little bit of a turnaround to start growing. And then after I became the first Russian-born global vice president of IBM, had a lot of great adventures, ran M&A for one of the division, ran a lot of interesting projects, was vice president of system software, sales and marketing. A recruiter showed up and recruited me into a logistics company. And when we talked, I did not realize it was logistics. He introduced it as business services. So when he named the company, I said, what's logistics? And I guess that question defined the rest of my life because I have been learning what's logistics and what the supply chain is for a very long time, spent every month, spent a few days in operations and really fell in love with supply chain because coming from technology field, I see bits and bytes and transactions where more traditional supply chain people may see purchase orders or boxes. And I think it's the combination. It's understanding the complexity and respecting the complexity of supply chain in everything from procurement and sourcing to delivery. It was what technology can do for it, yet keeping that unique complexity is what have defined the rest of my journey. So the rest of my companies have been working for uh, privately owned business-to-business companies, helping to bring innovation through technology, SaaS, and AI into the supply chain. That's a lot. And the first thing I think of is like, good on you to jump into adventures (laughs) where you have to learn more. And I think every area of B2B, that's my experience, is like I generally can sell anything in a B2B context if you could just explain to me what it is. And the domains of expertise 
necessary for all these different uh, segments of the economy and vertical delivery of services. It's an ongoing learning exercise at all times. And I typically, when I talk to leaders of businesses, that's one of the first things that comes up is the self-discipline of learning and being a lifelong student. And, And that really contributes to company culture. Has that been your experience? I could not agree more. I think you'll stay alive and active by learning, but let's start with what business to business is. You have to start by addressing a real pain that someone experiences. Business to business does not make impulse purchase, right? If I like a lipstick that I like at night, I may click a button, right? So selling me that lipstick is an art, but it's very different from understanding the complexity of uh, a problem experienced by an enterprise. And the questions you would get would be less about the colors of your screens, though, of course, the experience of working with a product has to be good. The questions that you would get will be, how do you handle cross-dock operations? Or we're a big retail chain, and we have to ramp up our stores up and down for innovation. Can your... uh, forecast of uh, the necessary uh, supplies and products and merchandise, address it. Can you forecast the differences and can you forecast your goods, not just by the products, but by models and men and women's shoes and different colors and sizes? And can you handle half sizes? Those may not be the sexiest and funniest problems for college graduate, but those are very real problems that our customers are dealing with each day, right? So in business to business, understanding that problem requires not just education, it requires understanding the complexity, respecting it, and bringing people on board who share the backgrounds and can understand it well, because I think no matter how many PhDs and MBAs I get, I would never understand the complexities of work of a planner in retail versus the complexity of work of a planner in food and beverage company. And this is when I'm blessed to have the experts and colleagues in my company who do, right? And that's that's a part of that. But of course, you have to learn at least to understand that those problems exist and uh, why they exist. Yes, I love that thought about there is no impulse buy in B2B. I had not thought about it that way, even after uh, a dozen or so years selling into big companies and learning procurement and all those things. But people often talk about that long buy cycle and constellation decision making and, and all this stuff. And you're right, on your side of the fence, you need subject matter experts who are going to be able to back up and really understand the problem of the client. Then you need your account executive and executive assist that you probably do from your seat, where it's really understanding and distilling the problem in the first place. And I'm sure you, everybody's tired of hearing, what are your pain points? It doesn't actually come out that way. That's ultimately... (laughs) what the answer is, but nobody shows up and says, oh, I really wish you could solve this one pain and everything would be fine. How do you take that massive complexity of the system that you're selling into and make it even consumable in a a series of never ending conversations, right? Like you need to make the problem and solution sets smaller, at least enough to talk about it from an expertise standpoint. And yet I know that every company really is different a little bit when they're thinking about 
the problems. I guess that's the role really of CEO is be able to zoom in on details and have the right people be able to zoom out and understand the macro discussion with those clients. What would you have to say about that? Because I think that happens a lot to business leaders. I think, first of all, when you claim that your product, your software product, service and industry, you need to understand what is happening in the industry, where that industry is going, what are the big picture pains? Because ramping up and down the stores is the question that the buyer will ask our technical sales and to show, show me how you do it. And by the way, if you cannot answer the critical mass of those questions, then probably your software would not fit because in enterprise sales, there are many decision makers and they have different agendas in a good way, right? They need different needs satisfied, right? If you ever went to buy a house with your family, you know that one person in the family rushes to the kitchen and another one says, show me the heating system first. And there knows no right or wrong solution. They both should be happy with the answers that they get. It's a somewhat small model of an enterprise sale, right? But for the CEO level, I think first and the most, understanding the how the big trends and economy shape the issues that our customers are dealing with and thinking how we can help them. So just to give you a few examples, before COVID, there was a lot of focus on the personalization of sales in retail. It was a huge number of brands. The life cycle of brand came down significantly. People were struggling with how do they sell and segment in the right way, because just segmenting on demographics was not necessarily the answer, right? My neighbor and I may be of the same age and have the same family of three, but I'm a vegan and she's a meat lover and I have a cat and she has a dog. So when we go shopping, our lists vary significantly. So personalization was a very big focus and Mark Tech was a very big focus. And then COVID hit. And it was not about marketing. It was about getting the right goods on the shelf. Remember the toilet paper. Rem remember the baby powder. When I explained to people why what it means to make supply chain the force for good, I talk about the fact that we want the right products on the shelves, but not in the warehouse where they eat up a lot of working capital without being able to be unloaded. But one of the questions I get also, this baby powder situation, it was because of supply chain, right? It was not the force for good at that point, right? As a society, we went through that. But think about what our retail and manufacturing customers went through keeping those products on the shelves. In many cases, they cannot properly forecast because the spikes in data went up and down. When COVID hit, the sales of office furniture went 70% up in one month and then dropped because everybody stuffed their home offices and it was a one-time event, can you think about what it did to your forecasting, right? And I can give you numerous examples of this kind. So the focus shift largely to the supply chain to the points that we have started seeing not just head of supply chain or head of merchandising involved, but the CEOs getting involved in making sure they have the right amount of right product. And then what we've seen recently is the huge growth in interest rates, right? So the shipping world reset, the prices for shipping went down, the schedules and lead times more or less stabilized, but yet we saw a huge increase in interest rates and that interest rates created a double whammy. They created a very high cost of locking your product, working capital in the wrong products. 
Because if you cannot unload a product for half a year and you have money locked into it, you're paying a much higher interest. But the second part of the problem was the disposable incomes of many people went down due to recession and inflation and higher interest rates on credit cards and a lot of jobs being lost in the economy. So that, in fact, affected a lot of our retailers who were selling products that the customers could have delayed buying from sports equipment to furniture to apparel. How do you plan your merchandising in that environment? How do you factor risks in as you go? Now, how do you do this if you have thousands and thousands of SKUs and you cannot have a separate meeting on how that red T-shirt of size M will sell? That is where you need artificial intelligence. This is where you need the solution. This is very high level of the problem. When you start thinking about how it brings a lot of business logic, it brings a lot of technical answers, and this is where we need experts, right? But understanding when and what to look at is important. We will announce in a couple of days that we just made an acquisition. And the company that we have acquired, I'm two days before the press release, so when the webcast hit, it probably will be an old news. No embargo for no us, embargo right? Because <laughs> right. the acquisition has officially happened. We're just waiting for a couple of days until we notify all the customers. The company uses AI. They have great artificial intelligence engine to optimize pricing and markdowns. Because in this very unstable environment of the economy, a lot of attention goes not only on how you've planned to have the right goods on the shelves, but unexpected events hit. We get rains, hurricanes, earthquakes, big economic issues happening. And no matter how well you plan, you will still have some percent of excessive goods. So rather than shipping them back to their house, a lot of companies will have to think about markdowns and markdowns have to be handled very differently by location, by store, right? We also earlier this year, we launched a product that allows the customers to decide if they fulfill that online order from a store or a warehouse and which store and which warehouse, because the shipping cost is not always the only criteria. You may choose to ship a little bit more expensively, but from a store where the product will be marked down tomorrow by 50%, right? And create a more profitable solution. So those are all the answers to the big economic issues. And those are, if you like, the CEO decisions or the decisions of the executive team, which CEO is a part of and has more accountability for. Nothing in the company is my sole decision, right? But I'm accountable for all the bad ones that we get, that we make. So this is what the executive, that's what the executive team has to decide what products we invest in, both organically and inorganically. And the products that we choose are the products that will help our customers the most during those economic times. As you talk about supply chain and retail, which is not my area of expertise, I'm thinking a lot of people have experienced this in a way that they can touch from Amazon. And that a lot of these ideas are things that we see as consumers. And I'm guessing that, and maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but are a lot of the major brick and mortar retailers taking cues from that massive shift where, you know, if you're Amazon and everything's online and in a warehouse, you don't worry about having to have things at the point of retail. 
or point of sale and you have dynamic pricing and you have tons of data. Is that the, the way that businesses are trying to evolve and solutions like yours help do that? First of all, even Amazon and sellers on Amazon may not be ideal. I have a few subscriptions, so as many other people, and occasionally I get that message, your item that was supposed to be shipped is not available. And yeah. sometimes you can choose an alternative, sometimes you cannot. So when you think about what it means for the retailer, whether it's Amazon or someone selling on Amazon, it means a lost opportunity, lost sales, because right. now I will have to go to my brick and mortar store and buy whatever it was that I need on a regular basis, whether it's something for my kitchen or my favorite food. And that means that they lost the sale. But that's not a good situation either. I think the bigger thing, and then I will mention one more thing that is very important. As much as we are excited about the growth of e-commerce over the last few years, we should all remember that over 70% of everything that is bought is still bought in brick and mortar stores. And there are many reasons for it, product by product. It's not bad for the customers because they can see what's available. When we come to Amazon, we search, and sometimes I get a suggestion of the product that other customers buy, but those other products within the same area, or I get suggestions for something I've already bought. And I only need one blender until this one gets completely out of commission. But when you go to the store, you start seeing things you have not even think about. You did not know they existed. You say, oh, someone solved that problem. I, I was having the problem opening those jars. And here's this nice, nice small device. Why so don't drop it in the basket? Another very important problem to think about are returns. The e-commerce has conditioned us to free returns and easy and seamless returns. But do not forget that those returns are not necessarily good for the retailer and for us, because when we walk through the store to return a product, we look around and we make some impulse purchases and we think about maybe making up for some of this revenue and so already spending that return amount. And it's good for retailers, but it's also good for us because, again, we see what is available. Oh, this is the new collection. This is how the spring trend looks like. And I really need one or two pieces of this new color. I really like it. You don't get any of it when you do online returns. So we've seen a huge shift to online and Bopis buy online, pick up in stores during COVID. We started seeing a little bit of adjustment now. I'm not saying that the e-commerce will go back to pre-COVID level, but the growth has reduced and retailers are taking time to reassess what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And um, that, that's one of the trends. Going back to exact point of your question, what can the industry get from Amazon? I would say one word, real time. When you can see all your inventory in real time, you can make much better decisions about lots of different things, right? From how you handle returns. Do they go back to the warehouse or right to the landfill? Do they go or to the store where they can be refurbished? Or if you're running a sales event and your flagship store is running out of your best-selling product, you don't want to find out about it with your ERP updates tomorrow, right? You want to find out in time to send more product and avoid a missed opportunity in sales. If you plan a big sales event in an area and suddenly there is a huge rain and some of the stores in those areas are affected, you probably want to hold any shipments to the stores or even move products from those stores to other stores 
as opposed to moving product from the warehouse. All of those examples are, are for retail, but they're equally appealing examples for the industry and manufacturing, especially think about food and beverage. We have customers, for example, in dairy industry. They have products with 10 days shelf life. If you are waiting for information from multiple warehouse management systems and ERP systems and several dealers to update in your system, you see what happened three days ago in the rear view mirror and you already have one third of your product shelf life off. Seeing things in real time is very important. And this is what Amazon and big online retailers do. They have a very good grasp of what is happening in real time. When I put in a return message, they see the return. When the return is scanned, wherever I delivered it, whether I delivered it to the store or send it through UPS, they have the status update. And that provides for much more efficient decisions. So for us, one of the directions, big things we do today was, is helping our customers to move from that static planning to dynamic planning, where they can see the whole inventory data through their digital twin that captures signals without waiting for updates from all the great ERPs and warehouse management systems, but captures those updates from scans and product scans and warehouse and return forms stamp and helps them to make more efficient decisions. So. I think in that sense, uh, watching what Amazon does is an interesting thing to plan in the future. Thank you for that explanation. I think a lot of people, even in B2B, they just don't have contact with this level of complexity. And I'm realizing how much I take for granted only selling technology and services for the purpose of technology and services companies, because we don't touch anything that's actually made out of atoms, just electrons. <laughs> so, Gosh, it's such a monumental task to to move things all over the world and, and track in real time. And I just find it fascinating. Supply chain became a word that was hot in the zeitgeist, like you said, for during COVID and everything was the supply chain's fault. And you look at that when you think of it from a business perspective, that's a very esoteric concept. There's actually no chain of supplies, right? We just call it that. What is really happening is that I loved how you said digital twin, because it's just like, there is stuff. There are physical items. They are sitting somewhere. They're just in the wrong place, or we just don't know where they are at all. And being able to move data in real time that matches that, I think that's the real calling of artificial intelligence and big data, machine learning, whatever you wanted to call that before everybody was hot on generative AI. That's a fascinating problem set. And what's it like to be on the forefront of that? Is this just exciting from a leadership perspective? I think you define forefront in different ways. There are companies who do a fantastic job developing technology tools for technology people. And we right. appreciate it as their customers. What we do is using those technologies to help vertical customers, to help the, as you said, customers who have something made of atom to touch, right? And we use the technology to make their life easier. I'll tell you a story. When I came from IBM, when I ran this technology for technology, right? I was the head of system software, sales and marketing. So we talked about different layers of how you build the cloud and automation tools and the Visualization tools, right? It's very deep technological stuff. And I came to logistics. 
And I came to a conference where there were a lot of people from the technology industry, the big giants, IBMs and uh, HPs and all other big companies of this world, and a lot of big logistics people. And I came from the logistics side. I was just interested in this particular panel. And the dialogue went like this. Logistics says we have a lot of problems we would appreciate if you help us to optimize it because with our level of profitability, just several percent improvements in efficiency of what we do makes a huge difference. And the technology group says, oh, that's great. Just pay us half a million to a million and we'll put great consultants on it and we'll figure it out. And the logistics team says, if we had half a million, we will buy trucks. There's always a great need in getting one step further in understanding how that technology can be applied to solve the real problem and what the real problems are that can be solved by technology. And this is what the company like ours does. We have very deep supply chain expertise, but we also have a deep technological expertise and we bring this together. Personally, I find it very exciting because I always was interested in what you can do with the computer, not just how the computer works. But I appreciate that there is a need for both types of interests to make all the rules turn. Right. You came from, you said, a sales pedigree, right, at, at IBM there. And I'm curious how uh, I often find there are CEOs who have spent most of their time in the sales and sort of uh, frontline type of role. Then there are CEOs that come out of marketing. There are CEOs that come out of product. How does that, your past, shape the company? in the way that you need to build everything else. Because I'm always interested in the path to CEO mm. because they come from different places. And I find those businesses behave very differently depending on which version of the CEO you um, are. First of all, as many women aspiring to be CEOs, I spent much longer time in my training. So I had a chance to take more classes, if you like. I did work a lot in product while running a Linux strategy for all IBM and work with a lot of product groups very closely. And I do understand, of course, the logistics and manufacturing. And I have Columbia MBA, which allowed me at least to read the balance sheet with enough depth to understand when I need professional help. But I think one thing to be said about the CEOs with sales and marketing background, and I have both, is the focus on the customer. For me, everything starts with the customer. I try, even today, being a CEO with a wonderful sales team and customer experience team, I make sure to spend at least 30% of my time talking to our customers. And this is not because I do not trust our internal charts or reports, which I do, and of course, with an understanding that some message may change, but because as a CEO coming to see a senior level at the customer, and asking a lot of good open questions and listen, you may understand a lot about not just where their businesses are today and what the current needs are, but where they are going and how that will shape the industry and how we can help them all. So I think that's what defines uh, the sales uh, CEOs in the first place, right? We're very attuned to the market driving the product as opposed to the product driving the market and build it and they will come and all the rest of it, right? Now, let's be very careful here because I always remember how Ford said, if I ask my customers, they will tell me they need a faster horse, right? 
it's not always just listening to the customers about what they currently need. And especially when you talk to your current customers and many, and especially the lower level of the customers, you may see a lot, hear a lot about the changes to the interface. So enabling that particular function. And that's not the strategic product discussion that we're talking about here, right? It's important discussion and should drive the product change. But then there is a discussion that drives the strategy for the company as opposed to the product, right? But I think that's important to know. I would also mention that I'm surrounded by software developers in my family. Both of my parents were software developers and my husband and my child, they're all in software development. I always say that only our cat and I are the only two who are not engaged in writing code. And I did write code in my very distant past before coming to IBM during university years. Even being the sales CEO, I still have a very deep appreciation that you cannot get a baby in one month with nine women and uh, get such things done faster or cheaper or better. At least you can aim for two out of three, but not all three, right? So I think that. Right. Yeah. And that is the classic lesson of, do you want it good, fast, or cheap? Choose two. Right? <laughs> so, Ford also said you can have it any color you want as long as it's black. I don't know if he was famous for customer empathy, but you know, there's a lot of innovators that, that have done really well. well you know, sometimes that trend it's an important saying, thing to remember when you run SaaS business, because a lot of SaaS businesses, especially in business to business, start with so many differences different variations and shades of black, and then it becomes very difficult to upgrade and maintain and evolve. That's actually not a bad message to remember in terms of discipline, just applying it carefully. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So let me shift to your, and we talked a little bit about your backstory and the things that that led you to where you are and that there's a, obviously a lifelong learning and there are multiple degrees at many levels and just like really impressive CV there. And that you're a generalist, you've you know applied all the areas. It's like you checked all the boxes for, for CEO. And I wonder what things along the way were, if not mistakes, maybe speed bumps or when you can go back and talk to your young self, what advice would you give that would have made it even better? Uh, well, we'll make mistakes, right? And the growth and comfort never go together, right? There is always the degree of discomfort. One of the mistakes, of course, is being too focused on your current function or your current job or your current KPI and avoiding seeing the big picture for the company. I think it's inevitable for any one of us as we grow that we try to overemphasize hitting our numbers and sometimes lose track of the bigger picture. When I first became the head of sales in a company, in logistics company, I came from sales and marketing background where I had a lot of controls. Working for a public company was very strong financial force, was a maybe general PL owner boss over me. I had very strong controls. When I came into the company where not only I was the head of sales, but I had the PL responsibility, I took a while to adjust to it. So in my first few months, we had uh, a bid for a very big, very prestigious company. It was a very big chain of, of bookstores. And the deal that they offered us in the end was not very good. It had some big legal risks. They refused to take uh, commitments for the total volumes handled. They put the deal in a separate legal entity, which was creating a lot of potential risk for us, which our CFO rightfully pointed out. But 
I was so fascinated with the possibility to add that impressive new logo to our collection of customers and saying we are providing services to this amazing brand that I took the deal. And of course, I regretted taking it because the deal turned out to be not a very profitable deal, Crossland profitable deal, especially after we made some further mistakes in implementing the IT system for that deal. Uh, being a logistics company, we underestimated some of the complexities there. So I think that taught me that not every deal is a good deal, right? That sometimes the most profitable deal is the one you walk away from and that you really need to step away out of your shell and saying, I'm the chief commercial officer, I need to hear my sales numbers. Think about how that may impact the company, right? I, I've seen numerous deals in different companies when sales will sign it, and then the product group would be derailed for quarters, not months, fitting in this function that they've promised, right? I've seen a lot of situations when the deal was signed without sufficient guarantees and the customer would go out of business and it was predictable. So those things, I think, is very important uh, to have in mind. I could have written that myself. I have done the thing where you buy the fancy logo for social proof and you regret it later. <laughs> and walking away, I did a deal where it was the biggest healthcare company in the world. And I had to walk because the terms were so onerous. And I was like, oh, but it's the right thing for the business. Like, just don't sign yourself up to be hurting later because the opportunity cost is so high. So I, I relate to that viscerally. <laughs> so that lesson is amazing. And, and everybody can do that at any scale, whatever scale you're at, really looking at those deals that are maybe just not good, even though you really want it and checking out your, essentially your cost of delivery and, and your profit margin is really going to be important there. And risk gets hidden all over the place in those 65 page master service agreements. So be careful. Mm -hmm. So before we go, I love to finish with, I find every leader that I host on the show has just unique perspectives and experiences. And what's fascinating about that is I always think you have something on your radar screen that's really important to you and apparent to you heading into the next couple years that nobody else does in this audience. And so I like to ask, essentially, what is that on your radar screen that you want to advise everybody pay attention to this because I think it's really going to matter? First of all, it may not be just obvious to me, but for anyone who works with retail and supply chain, I would warn of certain choppy waters. And we see uh, much more focus right now on preserving the working capital. I think any economy it goes through cycles, right? But I think it's important to recognize those cycles early and really implement the tools that would help you to avoid the overspending of the working capital. If you manage a supply chain, check if your forecasting is accurate, if your forecasting can be applied in a very choppy situation with numbers going up and down if the model is robust enough and does not require the rewriting of the software in the midst of a crisis, understanding how you replenish and how you allocate the products uh, to avoid any extra shipping, any extra inventory, and yet avoid missing on the service levels or avoid empty shelves. So I think 
that's something for everyone to have in mind and prepare for what may be a longer cycle of economy downtown by foolproofing those systems, by making sure that those systems run efficiently, because the further we all run into the critical situation, less efficiency situation, the more difficult it may be to start doing that from scratch. That's just one of my personal observations. And I think the same is true for all my colleagues in software. We are in the situation when we start seeing longer sales cycles and when we start seeing longer deals and more scrutiny of all the deals. So being prepared and investing wisely. And uh, I know that for a lot of software companies who have traditionally prioritized growth over profitability, that can be a very hard message. Same as for our customers who select the software vendors. Understanding if they prioritize growth versus profitability may be important to avoid uh, a very important provider being sold or going out of business uh, in the middle of the cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can see, and I represent a bunch of B2B interests, I can see that over the last year, things have slowed down. People are deeply evaluating their budgets. They're really thinking about return on investment and how you can quickly demonstrate that. KPIs are coming up far more than they used to. You know, it's sort of people aren't taking risks as much. And I think it has a lot to do with just money isn't as free as it used to be. And that funding sources are becoming more expensive across the board. Venture capitalists aren't giving out free money anymore. And you really have to be discerning in the deals that try to bring in the door on both sides of, of those. Positive of it, right? No crisis should be wasted. Think about the positives. You can use that preparation to foolproof your system, to equip it with real-time inventory visibility, to get the tools in place, to gain that efficiency over the competition and being able to have the right goods on the shelves and capture the opportunity when others would not be able to, right? So there is actually a very huge positive message in this and how you can compete in that environment and grow your business and leapfrog your competition. I love ending on positivity. Well played. Very well done. Thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for just coming on. I love learning from you. That, that was really interesting for me. I know everybody's going to benefit from it. Anybody that's resonating, interested in following up on you, what channels are you available on? What should they you know, check out online if they want to follow up. I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn, Ledge, or going through the company site. So I'm very happy to hear from other business-to-business leaders about their thoughts. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? reach out to us at contentallies.com.